We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Kisan Patel, an expert in mergers and acquisitions. He's the CEO and founder of DealRoom, which is part of M&A Science, a platform to help manage the M&A lifecycle, podcast host of M&A Science, and the author of the book, Agile M&A, Proven Techniques to Close Deals Faster and Maximize Value, a Practitioner's Guide. Kisan started out working as an advisor in mergers and acquisitions in Chicago, first with private clients and working up to corporations in various industries. He began his entrepreneur journey with a tech startup where he found he enjoyed working with engineers and also saw an opportunity to apply project management tools to the M&A industry. With DealRoom, he learned to face all the challenges of a tech startup, from working with a team, figuring out product market fit, and strategies for going to market. In 2017, a friend encouraged him to start a podcast. His show, M&A Science, seeks to help those working in the field to better understand the process and learn from others. The show gradually grew, and Kisan realized there was a demand for more information and resources. He wrote his book and created the M&A Science Academy for corporate team members to move quickly. Insights and skills others usually take years to learn on their own. Now, let's get better together. Kisan Patel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you coming on. You uh, are the CEO of M&A Science. You guys got a bunch of other products and projects going on. One is dealroom.net. And it's just so interesting how, 
you know, things sort of expand from the main base. And I think that's what I really want to talk with you about, because I think that's super fascinating how you have one line of business, then you find some stuff and then you try some stuff. And then all of a sudden now you've got two and three, they like multiply (laughs) like crazy can at least. Um, But before we talk all about that, as I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Sure. Well, it sounds like a pretty typical founder story. I worked in the industry. I was an M&A advisor running a boutique little practice in Chicago. Started off with a clientele base of private clients, then moved up into corporate. Uh, I wanted to get out of that area, especially when the last recession happened around 07. I wanted to get into tech. I found my way into a tech startup while still doing some deals on the side keeping uh, the practice going and it didn't work out. But in that experience, I got to manage engineers. I was really intrigued by the way these people were using project management tools to manage developing software. I kept reflecting to my experience in M&A and thought, why, why don't we have tools like that in our industry? Why do we still do every single thing on Excel and then email this Excel thing back and forth, back and forth? And that's what led to the inspiration to start a company called Deal Room in 2012 to bring a project management tool to the light in the M&A industry. And it was brutally hard. We were in a very conservative industry that people look at you 10 times up and down before they think about putting a $100 million deal on your platform. So we had that whole trust factor I had a big learning curve as a tech entrepreneur where I needed to learn how to build an engineering team that was actually productive, how to find a product market fit, which is a journey and then a whole nother journey when you actually find out what that really means. And then figure out a go to market. That's a whole harder thing to do than building the product itself. And then around, I'd say about five Six years ago, around 2017, things really started picking up. We were working with corporates. Around that time, a friend of mine in marketing was like, hey, man, you should do a podcast. And I was like, what the hell's a podcast? And uh, you know, he said, don't worry about it. It's going to be the next big thing. You just got to do it. So I, I kept mulling it over. And he actually enticed me. He got me to go to a podcast movement conference, network with a bunch of other podcasters. I thought, all right, I got to give this a shot. How about we take this idea of using a podcast to enable the practitioners in our industry to give have them a, give them a voice so they can share their lessons learned. And the the goal there was that in working with all these corporates corporates we saw this bigger underpinning problem and that they were so siloed off that they didn't have a standardization in how they did deals. So it was a little frustrating for us because every time we worked with a new client we had to learn everything that they know and how they do things to be able to help them. So we weren't getting this scale that we can rinse and repeat our model as easy as we thought we could. Uh, And since we started the podcast, it grew into a successful series, but it evolved and shaped into a digital media business of its own, where we create a whole series of blogs, a series of eBooks. We have two published books, our third one coming out this summer. We ended up starting an online academy school 
to help practitioners learn more of the practical how-tos. Uh, and then other little services came and emerged and, and still do. Uh, we ended up spinning off a tech product off a deal room called Firm Room, which is a slimmed down version for the smaller firms out there that aren't doing the massively complicated deals. And that's where our businesses evolved into a portfolio of educational resources and technology solutions for the industry. Wow. Starting your own media company. I think you have to these days, Jerry. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think you do. Um, And the best example I have of this is when HubSpot bought the hustle. And the hustle is this newsletter that was started by Sam Parr, like 2017, 2016, roughly in San Francisco. He's now moved to Austin, but you know, he built the audience up to like a million people on his email list. And then, you know, it was tech news for like millennials and stuff. And then they're like, oh, we got bought by HubSpot. I'm like, HubSpot, like they're like the CRM marketing automation, you know, Goliath, whatever you want to call them. But then you sort of see, see this trend as well. Like might as well be your own media company because media, I mean, I think honestly, it's more about the messaging and the branding and the marketing than it is about the product anymore, to be honest. So interesting that you found that and, and being early on in the podcast thing. And I, 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 it's, it's so cool that you're like, well, Hey, the need here is in the M and A space, and for M and A mergers and acquisitions, for anyone that doesn't know, <laughs> um, there is no single voice, or there's no place to like learn, and you know, like any kind of industry, there has to be like a standard, right? And it seems like, hey, we want to build the standard of excellence for M and A. We might as well talk about it. Um, how has that worked out? Is that like the way it kind of went? I mean, I'm sure it zigs and zags, right? But I'm always fascinated when businesses finally realize I also have to be a media company. Yeah, it wasn't, here's this clear-cut plan with this defined <laughs> end state in mind, and we're going to go out and achieve it. No, I, I was taking this idea of doing a little bit of a, a hobby almost, or, all right, I'm going to take my buddy's advice here because he's this is the one thing he's telling me to do, and I'll give it a shot. And then and the... What, what convinced myself was at the very least we can take this content and write some blog posts out of it and get a blog going. So we, that's, so that's where it started. Then didn't, I think what did help and gave us some good legs was having a mission from the beginning that we're doing this to build the voice of eminent practitioners in their industry that we're going to use it as a platform. So practitioners in our industry can share lessons learned. Hmm. Hmm. And then over time, we realized, well, if they're sharing lessons learned, we should be documenting these lessons learned. And then we ended up publishing a book called Agile M&A, which we published as a framework. Right. And our two lead case studies with the book were with Google and Atlassian. Now we're doing a second version of it. Probably it's going to get published in the following year. But that's even further expanding it into this open source model that allows contributors in the industry to share their plays, the artifacts that outline specific techniques in the industry. Um, but we no, we no idea when we started it, we didn't have no idea we we're going to end up doing that. We thought we we're just going to interview people. You know what, what it's the, if you think about the growth, right? When we started it, 
we had the first year a thousand downloads, then it went to seven thousand, twenty eight thousand, hundred and twenty thousand, then I forgot last year was maybe two hundred forty thousand. Uh, per year, per year, for annually, and it's a really niche space, right? Because we're oh, just though. corporate M and A people out there. Uh, but well, every year we kept pushing to get bigger and better guests. Every year that was our goal. We had in the beginning, I'd go hit up anybody. I'd go ask family members, like, can you come do this interview with me? I'm trying to get this podcast going. We didn't even publish very many, like maybe ten in a year. And then over time, when we did build our marketing function around the podcast, that's when we started taking it more seriously. Let's get bigger names. Bigger names get you more interest. Well, and also, you know, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, as you sort of build your media company or like, you know, the podcast. So what's interesting, I'm so glad you brought that up because when I first started doing this podcast, it was like I had this book. And I'm like, you know, I'm sick of blogging. What what else can I do? And then I have a friend, this guy, uh, Kevin Jones, who runs Blue Wire Podcasting, which is a sports podcasting network, right? And I'm actually on the Blue Wire Sports Podcasting Network. As not, it's, it's, a, it's a funny story. Um, but what's interesting, it's like, you're right. The the voice of like, okay, I have a community and, and for us, you know, on the show here, it's, we want to build a more ethical, inclusive and resilient world by educating and inspiring the next generation of entrepreneur. So I did not know that at the time. I mean, I wrote the book, the entrepreneur ethos, which has that in the thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, just, this is what I feel, but you're right. It like it evolved to this point where the, where the, the mission is aligned to the mission of what else, of, what, of the other things that you do. And I find that so fascinating because, yeah, like when I first started a podcast, I'm just like, I will take anyone that's an entrepreneur. Now, I mean, I'm booked all the way through July. I mean, I, and it's March now, right? So it's like, yeah, I, I like the, the level of guests is getting better. And of course, obviously the downloads follow that, which is really super interesting. But the advice I got from Kevin, he's like, don't even worry about downloads for a year just yep. do a show a week and don't worry about anything for at least a year. Just get the rhythm. And I'm like, oh man, but you know, I want a growth hack and all. He's like, don't. <laughs> I and agree. It, you know, and, and it, what's interesting is that the, in the art of it too, I think is funny because all of this content that we generate through the podcast like you said, like you now have an education arm, you have blog posts, you can snip media and like, you're going to write another book. I mean, a lot of the people that I've interviewed, I'm, you know, I put in books and stuff. So it's an interesting strategy. And, and especially in your, in your niche, it seems like there's not a lot of people, right? So my guess is people are like knocking on the door. Hey, I want to be on the show. Is that true? Or we do, we do, we do, but it goes back to staying in our domain focus. So now we're figuring that out because there's a sponsorship model you can introduce for those folks that really want to get on there. Because a lot of times they're providers. They are looking to get exposure to provider product or service. I mean, we're doing it as well when we first started it. But now that's the media part's grown almost bigger than what we expected. So we have a different view of what that is. It's more about the value we're trying to provide to the community and the community we're building around the content. Yeah. And and how do you build that community? I mean, other than the content, do you have a, 
place where they can go other than the academy? Is there like a Slack group of, I mean, cause that's now the big thing is like, okay, build a community that you can interact with and be of service. And then eventually maybe someday, who knows when <laughs> they'll like, let's do business with these guys. Is, 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 have you been finding that? Or, I mean, so how are you going about that community building aspect? We started doing virtual events, hmm. right? There, I think we started doing them during lockdown and COVID. It's just, all right, what am I going to do? Let's uh, <laughs> get busy here. Exactly. Find the next thing to do. We started doing events then. And it was really cool because our industry's behind. They're not a fast-moving sector. So a lot of them had in-person events. They were just canceling their events. And we started our digital events, and they picked up really well. And that, that's what gave us a good start. Today it's evolved. Now we're doing roundtable format events because the value the practitioners get goes beyond just the content. They want to connect with each other. They want to be able to network. And so we've shifted that format to be less about the content, more about the peer networking. Why, why don't we throw out a topic and have a roundtable discussion about it? And then is that all done virtually? We do it virtually. We're starting to do it in person now. We just did our first one a few weeks ago. And now uh, I'm excited to get that going again because that, that's fun. I miss going out to events. Really? How did it feel? It was good. It was just a little awkward at the beginning. Like, oh, I forgot what it's like to, to meet people again. And, <laughs> oh, then, so that's what you look like. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's just fun. Cause you connect with people in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's just the relationship building happens a lot faster and at a higher level of quality than you would do virtually. And you can't get away from that. The convenience is there virtually. We'll give it that. But the, that level of quality and the speed you can build the, that personal touch and relationship to build confidence and the likely, like, uh, what do you call it? The likeliness of somebody really wanting to do business with you or yeah. the likability of somebody wanting to do business with well, you. That, that's true. Yeah. The likability. That's tough. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I, I think what's interesting, what I've, I mean, I've, I don't think I've gone to a, a networking event. Yeah. Well, that's not, well, I went to a political event and then I, and then I went to a, uh, a commission meeting. I'm on a commission. So the first one we did like live. Right. And I'm like, we had masks on, we're in San Francisco. We're like a little different, you know, but I'm in, I remember I'm in this room the first time I'm with all these people that I've known virtually for the last month or two. And I'm like, this is a little weird, but a little cool that we're like, Hey, we can see each other, you know? And, um, but I think you're right. I mean, what, but what, what is also interesting about having the media and your podcast and all this sort of stuff, and I, and I love your take on this, is when people meet me, they're like, oh, you sound just like you sound on your podcast. <laughs> so do you find that too? Is it like you, even though you're not there, the unlike, well, video and anything when the people can hear your voice, do they, do they say that? Is it like, I'm just curious because I, I get the, I feel like I know you, even though you're meeting me for the first time and right. that's why this is awkward. Right. <laughs> like I know tons about what you do, but who, who are you? Right. Who are you? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I think, I think the events are going to come back and this whole hybrid approach is going to come back. I don't know. Are you guys doing hybrid things where. Not real. I'm running a business. I do like running a fully remote business. We were hybrid 
not hybrid in a sense. We were mixed. We had folks working. Our sales and marketing function was in person. Mm-hmm. The rest of the team was distributed. Now we're fully remote. And it's, people look at the productivity sense of it. And I didn't have anything I could really point at as this is reducing our productivity. In a lot of ways, I found it enhanced our productivity. And it reduced a lot of costs. Because it's one thing to look at, hey, we're spending about thirty five hundred, four grand a month in an office. But I didn't realize there's all these little hidden expenses with that office that you don't see. Like when we're having meetings, I got my reps are going out. They're doing the lunch and learn sessions. They're taking clients out for dinner. They're doing all these activities. Company's paying for all of that stuff. Just the supplies that you had in the office, the other little things that just keep adding up, adding up. And you actually saved quite a bit. It was like over, I was trying to estimate it, it was over 10,000 a month. Yeah. And now all of a sudden that gets shifted over to other areas of the business that could help us grow. Yeah. And, and I think the, um, just the convenience of it. I mean, I, I think you're right. Like in terms of live events, the speed of trust, I think Cubby said that speed of trust just accelerates also with teams getting together occasionally. I mean, I'm, I'm for that too. I don't, I see that as a huge positive, but the whole idea of being able to work remotely from anywhere and have that flexibility, especially during the lockdown and all that sort of stuff has been really beneficial. I'm, I'm a bit dismayed with all these big companies. Like you got to go back to the office. Like I have a friend that works at Apple and he's just like, yeah, we're in the office. We're wearing masks. And I'm like, really? Like, yeah, I like triple vaxxed and the whole thing. I think, I mean, Apple made their own masks. I mean, cause it's Apple. Right. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, you know, so you're just like, Oh God, you know, huge eye roll because, you know, people have found that, I mean, that commute time, obviously, depending on how you use it and just the amount of distraction in an office and the amount of like people interrupting you and all that sort of stuff is the downside. But then obviously the upside is, Oh, I see you in person. I feel your energy and you know, we can, we can charge the whiteboard and do stuff. And I, I see the value in that, but yeah, I think this, I think people are missing the mark a little bit on that. It's interesting. You guys are now fully remote. That's kind of cool. We, we, we do that. It's just more ad hoc. If I need to get together with my other executive, we'll, we'll meet up. We'll meet up in a different city. Maybe we can go to this other city and grab some other meetings while we're there. Right. Interesting. Uh, hey, maybe we got new hires coming in. We could do training and pick up some of the, the sort of executive powwows over there. I there, There's just flexibility. It creates a more dynamic approach. But I, I don't I don't see us going back to in-person. I think there's some real compelling advantages with this model, especially when we look at growth and acquiring and attracting talent. Yeah. There's a big emerging market of folks that do not want to go back to the office. Yeah. And it's allowing us to find some high quality talent in that big surgence that's happening, which has been really exciting for a company like us to really get access to good quality talent. Not across the board. I think we're still at ends when it comes to hiring engineers and good sales reps. But a lot of the other functions, it's becoming a lot easier to hire folks. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think people are going to have a kind of a, 
rude awakening if they're draconian about like go to the I mean and I understand why some of these huge companies like go to the office we are spending millions of dollars a month on this empty building <laughs> you know and of course there's the whole methodol management methodology of you know managed by walk around back in the old days and they want to see you there and you know all that and but I do think that it's a huge shift I think the I think the companies that can adapt to that and use it to their benefit are just going to be able to grow faster. Like you said, I, I don't see any reason why that's not the case. Why wouldn't you want to be able to hire some talented person in the middle of nowhere? That's just like, has this lifestyle. They want this lifestyle. They have a work-life balance or whatever, but they're they're They just crush it. So that's super interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned about your educational aspect of the business, the Academy, um, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And, and the reason why I'm curious about that is because in industry, I'm assuming M&A is regulated, right? Is there some regulations? Or, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually not, I'm kind of naive on it. I've, I've never been it, part of that. Our, in some ways it is, and it isn't right. If we're two business owners with our privately held companies, I'm going to buy your company and we're doing our deal. There's not a lot of oversight happening there at the end of the day. You got a good lawyer. I hire a good lawyer. And then the day is a lot of legal work that happens to make this transaction occur. When we look at a large publicly traded company, you got some securities mixed in. And now there's bankers involved and they're regulated. They got FINRA oversight. Mm -hmm. There's SEC with oversight. Um, are they looking just to, you know, DOJ's got their own agenda when it comes to M&A. So mm -hmm. you, you, do, you do run into that when it comes to anything public market or at a large scale. What are the big drivers of that? You know, they're, they're just making sure things are, aren't obviously the big impact. Hey, we got some certain risks that we're trying to minimize monopolies and whatnot. You have that from the, um, political side but then if you look at some of these regulatory bodies like uh the the finra and sec they're just making sure nobody's getting cheated like nobody's yeah. out cheating grandparents out of retirement savings and things like that i mean that's really why they exist so when we look at m a it, you do got to do your own work you know, there's nobody there looking over you and making sure things are happening the right way everybody uh, is mindful of who's a stakeholder on their side and, and what they need to do. So, so as an entrepreneur, like what are some of the things that you should look out for if, if you're going to do an M&A deal? Like someone says, Hey, want to buy your company? Like, are there other than hire you guys or do you call your Academy stuff or whatever? I don't know how, how, how what, what advice, you know, what advice do you give them? How's the, yeah, I'll go because we, we focus a lot of corporate M and A. So it's, oh. somebody's doing some massive and it's got a lot of complexities involved that that's right. been our, our focus. They're picking up as a career, but you know, generally thinking about M and A it's, it's a, the curiosity. I think that's the thing that when you aren't curious and you're not getting into the details and constantly asking why constantly trying to understand things that that's when you fall into that trap. If you get too much into I'm doing this deal and you're fixated on one thing, I'm selling a company and I'm fixated on this paycheck. I'm getting out of it. And then lo and behold, after the deal's done, you see the ship on fire sinking and it 
tears you apart and you like could wish you can give this check back to get what you had and not see that happen. But had you been more curious about, Hey, why do you want to buy the company? What are you planning to do with the company? How do you plan on doing that? What's going to happen if something goes wrong? What if the people there don't want to do that? Then what are you going to do? You know, when you start really digging in out of curiosity, then you can learn about things and be like, wait a minute. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They don't have a clear plan. And I can see a lot of problems that are going to happen after this deal is done. Uh, same thing when you're buying a company. You know, you get caught up in that vision because most M&A starts with this vision of innovation. More often times than not, it ends up with a lot of chaos, pissed off people that quit their job and leave with a lot of value with them. So how do you, you take that vision but look past it and ask those questions out of curiosity? What, how are we going to get there? What are going to be the big drivers to make this deal successful? Who do we need to make this deal successful? How do we get them aligned and motivated to want to make this successful? And, and really planning and building those things out and having that preparation, that's what ultimately drives success in M&A and good leadership. You got to have good leadership. Yeah. I've been at big companies where we've bought smaller companies and being on the other side of like the acquiring company, trying to integrate the acquired company into the collective, depending on the culture, right? Was a nightmare. It was just an absolute nightmare. Uh, They didn't didn't choose to come work for you. Why should, why should they make it easy? Well, yeah. And, and it was funny because it was a, it was at a semiconductor company and the semiconductor company was very rigid, obviously, since it's a semiconductor company. And some of the companies we bought were pretty Yahoo, like, you know, startup-y, break every rule, um, pretty much like, why do we have to do it this way? We did it. And you're like, because we're a semiconductor company. We have something called a specification. We need to follow the spec. And I mean, it was a whole, and it was just like this constant agitation, you know? And, but then I was at another company it was a biotech company. They got bought and the acquiring company left us alone. They're like, do your thing. We will integrate you at a later date. Um, that one worked out much better. <laughs> and I was part of the company that got acquired. So I was like, what's this mean when we're part of this billion dollar company and we're this, this Yahoo's, you know, Yahoo's in this little corner, right? Um, but you're right. Like, what's the vision? I think that's a very important thing. It's, it's, it's besides the money, right? I think that's the, the thing that seems to be the real differentiator. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. And so as part of your like academy, so, so your, your M&A academy is for practitioners. So like, if let's just say, as an example, I'm a big corporate guy, I'm like, I'm big corp and I'm like, Hey, I, I want to do some deals. And I need some M&A people to go out and find deals and stuff. Is that who, what your academy's focused on? A lot of times there is a team there. Maybe it's a small team. There's someone there that's spearheading the M&A activity. But what happens is as the companies do more activity, their deals get bigger, they, they get more and more people involved in the company with M&A. M&A touches a lot of pieces in an organization. It's the largest magnitude of change management for that company you're acquiring. And you want to build good competency around how to execute on M&A. Because if you don't, you're going to lose a lot of money doing it. 
And that's where we create these programs that are geared towards corporates so that they can bring in their team members and get them up to speed. They can provide them resources so they can learn how to do things, how to do diligence, how to plan for integration and see how other practitioners are doing it, be able to get access to the templates and tools so they're not really trying to shorten the learning curve because this is an expensive learning curve. You get somebody yeah. that misses something big in diligence and it could be a yeah. costly mistake later. Yeah. So I that, mean, the comp- yeah, the company that, that got bought by the bigger company that I was at, it was a $750 million deal. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> wow. So I'm curious who, who in the industry, big corporations, who, who do you think does a good job at MA? Like what are some of the ones that are like you would, you know, I mean, of course, you cannot answer the question <laughs> if it's no, like, ah, no, I, I, I think it's tech companies that do a high volume of deals. Mm-hmm. I'd say Google, I would say Cisco, especially when they have that agile in their culture. When, when they have that there and they're applying it to M&A, they do really well. They, because the, the nature of agile makes a lot of sense for M&A. Same thing in the software space. You can't create this massive plan based off of assumptions and expect it to go fine and dandy. If you can build your operating management model to be responding to changes as they're happening, that's going to allow you to be a lot leaner, more efficient, and produce better results at the end. That's where the companies that have Agile as part of their culture are the ones that do M&A the best. The Googles, the Lassians, Cisco, any of these other type of tech, you know, there's probably a bunch of them out there. The Coinbase's, the Robin Hoods, right? You know, those companies that operate that that real startup culture, they're the ones that do emanate the best. And, and and the agile approach, the reason why it's so effective for MA is because of the change. Like things change. Is is it like a being adaptable or what part of it is like the secret sauce? When you, when you do an M&A deal, when we start the deal, it's just you and I talking about it. Hey, let's think about doing a deal, blah, blah, blah. And we warm up to the idea at that time. There's just little information. We're sharing some ideas as we progress through the process, we get more people involved and more information gets exchanged. And that continues all the way through us getting a a term sheet or LOI signed. And then once we get that signed, they're really doubling down. And I want to make sure we're doing the right thing here. I want to make sure there's no big surprises. I want to make sure everything Jari told me is accurate and true. (laughs) Everything that they presented as financials, all that stuff. Now we got a lot more information. And then we're going to start uncovering stuff. Like no doubt we're going to come across some awkward thing. Be Like, Hey Jari, there's a like, a half a dozen contractors that probably should be W-2s. And because we're a large publicly traded company, we got to, that's a risk for us. We got to figure this out. Can right. we put them on W-2s or whatnot? Hey, Adam, yeah, yeah. you've got some folks here that are on some work visas and, you know, we're not set up to sponsor those work visas. You know, now how are we going to do this? We can't make an asset sale. We have to turn this into a stock sale, which we don't want to do because you're pending lawsuits going on over here. So there, there's all, all these complications that, that happen. Uh, and that, that's where that agility comes in play because we've already created an operating model that we can be responsive to this. 
what a lot of time happens is some of this new information you get not only identifies a risk to mitigate, but can also identify an opportunity. I may find out, oh, we didn't know, but they're actually on Salesforce and we're on Salesforce. So the integration of CRM isn't going to be as complicated. Uh, you know, we can get ahead of this right now and set things up or plan ahead. So this is going to be way easier than we expected. You know, let's figure out a good way to make sure the sales reps get access to both client lists when we do complete the deal from day one. Um, now, now we're taking this information and we're updating our plans on what we're going to do with this business after we close. Again, being really iterative about it, keeping these short cycles of iteration so we can continuously update our plans. If we were operating off of a plan that we came up with from the beginning, that that stuff wouldn't have gotten updated, right? We would have been carrying along this plan and oh, we're following the plan, we're following the plan. <laughs> And that, that, that's where like the agile model is really cool when it comes to M&A because now as we're from the beginning of diligence, we can from scratch basically even build our integration plan and be very iterative about it. So all these little things that we have for considerations while we're identifying risks, we can plan for value capture once we close the deal. Interesting. And that's, that's part of your agile M&A book, like the framework on how that's done. That's a part of it. It's just basic concept. It's just saying, here's here's what these software engineers are doing in terms of their culture and way of working. It works really well for M&A. We see software companies that are often doing it because it's part of their DNA. Yeah. Uh, we wrote it as a framework to say, hey, non-software companies out there, if you're not practicing agile or not familiar with it, we dummied it down so even high school kids could understand it. <laughs> Highly recommend checking a copy of this book out because there's at least like three to five little things that you could do yeah. to start getting you in that direction. Ultimately, it's about creating a change-oriented culture that drives continuous improvement. You know, If you're not able to achieve that, I don't think there's much hope, period. But if you can create that culture where folks are adaptive, you can introduce change, you try things, you don't like it, throw it out change, tweak it, you know, keep doing that, then you'll, you'll get somewhere regardless. Do you think that's the reason why the, the old method, the reason why, and I read this statistic somewhere, maybe you can update it where the majority of M&As just don't pan out because like the value, I mean, and, and this was a long time ago, so I may be completely off the rails on this, but there was some statistic I read that, and it was some ridiculous number, like 80% of M&As, the value is less after the acquisition. And I was like, I was always shocked by that, but then being going through a couple of them and not there, they were not agile at all. <laughs> they were like, you know, we're just going to do it this way. We have a plan. You know, there was like, there was a whole difference between the waterfall project management plan and the agile bench, like, which for those of you that are geeking out on it, right. Um, the old way was waterfall and the new way is agile, obviously. Do you think that was part of it? Because it seems, it does seem like there's a contribution to that. Because again, in all the experience I've been at, not being adaptable was what was what just crushed people. Like, oh, we do it this way because we do it this way. You're like, well, we don't, this is stupid. <laughs> or, you know, like maybe not stupid. Well, no, a lot of the stuff was stupid. <laughs> is I want I'm curious, is that do you think do you see that? I agree. There's a high failure rate. There's a very vague definition of what failure is. 
because we targeted to capture these synergies at this time. We didn't get all of them. We got four out of the five. Is it a failure? I don't know. Uh, we anticipated on growing met revenues by $1 million in 12 months. We grew it by 0.9 million. Is it a failure? So a lot of times that ultimately when you open things up, they get to where they want to go. It just took them a lot longer than they expected. Uh, then there are some total disasters too, but those don't happen as often. You know, they do happen when you, especially if you get companies that are new to M and a, they don't know what they're doing. It's easy to trip up and make mistake that snowballs into some really big, uh, loss of value. So that, 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 that definitely can happen. And it does, and it probably does get swept under the rug, which is why it's not talked about as much. <laughs> the, um, the huge dumpster fire that we're just going to put over there and not worry about. <laughs> when we look at the mo- the volume of, of deals, it's, it's not that bad. Um, I, I do think the reason that they do have the missed target is because the change management component, like to really enact on all the changes you need to capture the value. That's a big part of it. That ability to execute on that, that ends up being lacking. It tends to be a big focus on the front end, creating the model, estimating synergies, inflating those estimates until you got a model that looks good enough that the board will actually approve. And then you're passing on to another team to go execute on those synergies when they had nothing to do with coming up with those estimates. And they're looking at it like, hey, we're assigned Mission Impossible here. And we don't get the glorious bonus that the folks that tend to close the deal get. Uh, it's tough. It's really, really tough to make those deals happen that way and make them successful. So do you, A, drop your expectations and be a little more realistic? Or B, do you look at ways to enhance your approach at enacting those changes that ultimately capture the value you anticipated. Yeah. The, the things you mentioned were exactly the problems that came up and <laughs> all the ones that I pissed off with. <laughs> Cause it's like, there's a interest, there's like, like a con there's a lot of conflict between like, so some of the deals are like common deal. Okay. You're worth this much. We're going to pay you half in cash and half as a performance booster. Like if you perform quote unquote, then you get, the rest of this. Well, if the performance is tied to the actual resources of the company, you're just, this is never going to happen. I mean, every one of those I've been involved with, they never triggered because there's this antibody approach. <laughs> like It's like rejecting this new thing. That's the, the incentives are not aligned. And you're right. The team that did the deal is not the team that integrates and having both of those in it, you know, being part of the plan because they're different skill sets. It's so different. And yeah, the ones that have been successful have had that integrative approach, the agile approach, right? Like we're going to iterate until we get it right. And, and, and the incentive, incentives were also aligned. I think that was the other thing that was always the challenge. It's like, we bought this company, we've made all these millionaires. Okay, now what? <laughs> you know, and it's just fascinating. So I guess, I guess the real thing is if you're going to do M&A, hire someone that knows what they're doing, <laughs> like anything. <laughs> it, it helps if you're new to it. It definitely helps. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. 
It's and, hard because there's a lot of folks out there that are in the industry to make some quick cash. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's some folks that are really passionate about the industry and creating value. Right. And you really got to take your time to figure out who those people are. Because I'm, ass- I'm assuming that every company of a certain size, and I don't know what that, I mean, I'd love your thoughts on this, of a certain size, should absolutely have an M&A division looking for the next thing or because I mean what I hear a lot of and again I don't know if these these are old statistics that at a big company most innovation happens through acquisition it doesn't really happen organically and maybe Apple's is a little different than that but it's got to be if you're a major public company you have to have this function right not necessarily it really? really goes back to your strategy. I'd say a good 80% have an M&A function, but there's a lot of public companies that don't have an M&A function. Uh, you, you know, and it really hmm. goes to your strategy. It all depends on your strategy. M&A is a tool against your strategy. Hmm. M&A itself isn't a strategy. Right. That's how you do a lot of bad deals when that happens. <laughs> oh, really? Like, how so? Yeah, if you're going to go find an M&A a comp- an opportunity and then justify it, that's not good. You know, it's, if it's really clear that here's our strategy, when, when your strategy is flushed out, you can align more people in your organization around it. Mm. And they kind of become eyes and ears looking for opportunities and is very well justified because now it's like, Hey, this is part of the strategy. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to grow in LATAM and we want to get there, you know, fast, quick, this and that. Here's a company that's going to allow us to enter that market. Uh, we're looking to add some, you know, mass email capability to our tech stack. Mm-hmm. Well, here's this company that we found that actually would allow us to add this capability a lot faster and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then, it, you know, cause sometimes you might look at that and say, Hey, can we, does it have to be an acquisition? Can we just license this? Oh, that's a good point. Like partnership. Or licensing you, yeah. That's where the the strategy is important. What are your What are you trying to achieve? Hmm. Then how do you achieve it? That goes a different direction. Yes, M and A could be a great tool to get innovation in faster. It, It could help an organization transform. The challenge with a lot of large organizations is finding their relevance because it diminishes over time. And if you're not disrupting yourself, somebody else will, and nobody wants that because that's when you either get, uh, you get acquired or shut down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's where these companies will do these acquisitions with the goal of transforming that business line, uh, with, with this new acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's like, uh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Cool. So, um, what questions would you have the next generation of entrepreneur ask themselves? I mean, M and A wise could be that, or like you as an entrepreneur, like, what do you think? What What are some of the things that they should like be questioning? I think the you know, the passion is always the cliche thing, and but the <laughs> thing there there's some truth with it because it I remember early in my career pre turning 30, I was constantly jumping around. 
constantly, even if I was working in M&A, I would go from one industry focus. Then six months later, I'm like, I want to go focus in this other industry. I want to go focus in another industry. And it wasn't until later I realized you, it takes a lot of time to become that domain expert and build your reputation and, and so forth. So if you're passionate about the problem you're looking to solve and can see yourself spending 10, 20 years in that space, I think that that's a big thing. I think that's a big one. Now, Maybe there's some short interim opportunities and we got to have folks that take advantage of that. Uh, at that point, the goals, really looking at your goals and working your way backwards. I found it to be helpful to get in that mindset when it comes to problem solving. And there's, you could look at like Charlie Munger inversion. You could look at uh, retrospectives, like all these different approaches and, and the, these frameworks and philosophies around it. Many times you could either problem solve and work your way backwards, you know, even take as an exercise what's something impossible you can do and then figure out how to do it. Uh, I, I just, I like that when you can use that as a tool in your approach on direction. Uh, and I find it helpful in a lot of situations, whether you're, you're looking to build your strategy, whether you're looking to find your career, uh, business direction, any of that stuff is can you really look at where you're trying to go and work your way backwards to understand what it takes to get there, but what are the impediments that are going to block you from doing that? That's probably the big thing is, uh, yeah, just kind of taking your time to, to think through that stuff. That curiosity, it goes back to that curiosity, right? You're asking all these questions. You know, yeah. what, what would it take to do that? What yeah. It- yeah. Working backwards from the end goal, like, What's the end goal? And then I like that approach. I mean, I, I tend to do that as well. We talk about it, but we forget to. And that's, I guess what I'm trying to get is like, how do you make that into a practice? Right. We're constantly, and it, it, it gets applied in our dialogue with our teammates. Cause you'll say, Hey, like, what are we trying to like? Let's, let's figure this out. Let's talk through this. And then you're, you're, you're working it backwards. Uh, I had it earlier today. The team was building a case to create a new role in the company. Oh. But they they took it backwards. They went through. Uh, I didn't have to lead it. I just sat quiet in the corner, and they were just going through. Like, okay, what what is that going to look like? And you know, from um, the touch points for the customers, and you know, these things. And they worked it backwards and understood the value of that role in a really clear way. Where I didn't have to say, I didn't have to ask anything. I just was ready to sign off on it. <laughs> That's that's really powerful. That, that's that's sort of when you know you've got an I think honestly an agile approach because that's what agile does, right? They're constantly trying to figure out okay, what's the end game? You know, I mean, even in software development, right? It's like okay, we're going to do this sprint. How does this sprint work? And the nice thing is it's it's in these manageable chunks that are not you know we used to do these waterfall plans that were like. 18 weeks, 20 weeks. I mean, just these ridiculous, like there's no, we don't even know what tomorrow is going to happen. Let now we're going to like spend 20, we're going to plan something for 25 weeks out. We don't know a clue what's going to happen. So cool. Wow. Well, Kisan, thank you so much for, for being on the show. It's very, very informative. I like learned something new about m and <laughs> I mean, again, I don't have a, an opportunity to use the knowledge yet, but I think it's really important as entrepreneurs, as we think about these things, especially if we're part of being the acquired company, like 
which happens. I love your question about how does this align? What are we really trying to do? How's this going to work out? I mean, the money is fine, but like, how are we going to align for success? Because I think ultimately when we build companies, depending on the exit, I mean, we want them to live on. I mean, we want, we don't want it to be a dumpster fire that they just like cut off. Right. That would be horrible. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jerry. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Keyson, for being on the show. Super interesting to learn about mergers and acquisitions. As I said before, I've been uh, involved in some, one on actually getting acquired and the other one being the acquiring company. So a lot of what you say is totally rings true. So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Keyson. Keyson places a lot of emphasis on the importance of simply being curious and asking questions. If you're involved in a merger acquisition, find out as much as you can about the company you're partnering with. Similarly, as an entrepreneur, figure out where you want to to get and to ask, what would it take to get there? And excuse me, so often there is a case where, you know, you see the deal and the dollar bills and all that sort of stuff. And you sort of don't ask the question behind the question, right? Like, do I really want to do this? Yes, it's attractive on the money side, but is this going to be a good fit? Do I want to actually continue to work there as time goes on? And a lot of times, you know, I think the statistics we we mentioned was like eight out of 10 of these M&As sort of fail, quote unquote, when it comes to value creation. So you really got to ask yourself that question. So, you know, ask yourself, what do I get out of it other than the money? What does the company get out of it? What's the culture like? How can we, you know, bridge the gap if there is a gap? Being agile means having the flexibility to respond as new information emerges, allowing you to iterate and reiterate until you get to the place that works best for all. The agile approach to mergers and acquisition also helps align the people who will be most affected by the changes. Software companies are often successful at M&A because they already have a more agile approach built into their company culture. And so that's absolutely true. Um, What's really interesting about, we talked about waterfall versus agile. Um, A lot of times, especially in software where it's so rapidly changing, you know, you just need to plan the next week. (laughs) I mean, you can't like, oh, we're going to take 18 weeks to do this. It's like, that's just not going to work. So it is interesting that um, applying the agile approach to M&A allows you to be a little more flexible. And I think it's it's a wise thing. So when if you're doing this, you should ask yourself what are the like kind of the north star like things that you really want, what's the end game, but don't get all wrapped into how that may or may not happen. Of course, it has to happen in a, you know, in a in a logical progression over time, you know, in in a timely manner, but how you get there may be totally different than where you started. So just consider that. Well, there you have it. Those were the actionable insights I learned from my awesome interview. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. 
You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.